Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. It's an all-too-familiar roll call. The escalating climate crisis, geopolitical volatility, the continuing rise of ultranationalism, all of it sloshing around in a toxic stew of disinformation and misinformation. There's something fundamentally wrong with the communications environment that we live in. It has lethal consequences, right? We saw it in the pandemic. Is anybody dealing with this effectively? Honestly, I don't know. And while our ideal of democracy may still be standing, its legs do appear to be buckling. One thing that is creaky in our democracy is our system of representation, right? You can govern just to part of the country, as we know, or you can govern to just part of the electorate. And I think if we are looking for change over the next decade or so, we're going to have to look again at our systems of representation. Today on Ideas, we begin a five-part series we're calling The New World Disorder. And the title of this discussion is Information, Disinformation, and the Future of Democracy. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Innes Town Hall, University of Toronto. I can't think of two other people who are better qualified to discuss this than the people we have with us today. And I'm happy and proud to say that both are former CBC Massey lecturers. Jennifer Welsh is the Canada 150 Research Chair in Global Governance and Security and the Director of the Centre for International Peace and Security Studies at McGill University. Her 2016 Massey lectures were called The Return of History, Conflict, Migration and Geopolitics in the 21st Century. And if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend you do. Ron Diebert directs Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy here at the University of Toronto. His 2020 Masseys were called Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Thank you both so much for talking to us. I began our discussion with Jennifer Welsh. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, the pandemic and the response to it, of course, you know, the January 6th insurrection, you know, China's, you know, vice grip or growing grip on Hong Kong, the list goes on. It feels as though we've kind of stepped into a new era, like a new world order or perhaps a new world disorder. What would you call it? At a time like this, when the ground feels very unstable, I think makes many want to reach back into history for an analogy, whether it's the Cold War, the 1930s. And when we look globally, we also see that it is no longer, if it ever was, we could debate that, um, a global order dominated by Western values. But nor is it a global order that is dominated by autocratic values. And you can see this very much within the only universal intergovernmental body we have, the United Nations, where you have different value systems clashing. 
But there are many countries, and, and I, I would dare say many citizens around the world, that are hedging their bets, that don't want to be in a camp. Those countries that didn't vote in favor of a condemnation of the Russian invasion. Uh, countries that are not comfortable being pigeonholed as being on the side of the West or being on the side of Russia, uh, that either abstained or are trying to sit on the fence, much to the disappointment of many Western governments who thought, oh, they're going to line up behind us to condemn Russia. But they haven't. And the reasons for that, they, they go back a couple of decades to Western action, to the lack of consistency in the way that Western countries have, have upheld their so-called values. And so I think we're really seeing a number of countries around the world waiting out what happens. Now, if you kind of think back to 1989, when we were sort of promised the world, we were promised that, you know, the narrative was that all of what happened in 1989 would make life better, make it freer, make us make countries more democratic, more, you know, have more liberal democracies around the world. Jennifer, again, and we'll come to you, Ron, is it, how did it actually play out? What, what went wrong, do you think, with that narrative? When you think back to 1989, I think it is true to say that there was a victory for liberal democracy as an attractive ideology. And we had what political scientists called, you know, the, the third wave of, of democratization. And, you know, empirically, we saw more countries become democratic. So there was, in a sense, a, a confidence in progress, political progress. And what we've seen is, of course, that democracy is very difficult to build and sustain. And I think what went wrong at bottom was that many democratic citizens became complacent about their political system. They thought they could push it to the brink and it would never crack. But if you study democracy and you study democracy's history and you recognize that we've had waves, we've had troughs, if you take the long view, you quickly become convinced that democracy, it's a process. It's a daily process that you have to invest in, that you have to be committed to. And I think we lost sight of that. Ron, I wanted to ask you, I mean, we've listed just a few of the of the symptoms of the problems that we're experiencing right now. And I think it's fair to say that, that many of them are fed and, and fueled by misinformation and by disinformation. You know, to, to weather this kind of storm, we need to address the contributing factors. And I wanted, to, in doing so, to go back to your Massey lectures, uh, where you looked at that pivot point in 1989 and saw more than what the official narrative presented to us back then. While most of the Western media and policy world was drawing such sweeping people power conclusions, the autocrats themselves, watching it all unfold, were asking a much different question. How do we prevent something like that from ever happening again? It was not long before they and their security agencies began to realize just how useful it is to have their adversaries plugged in, networked, and online communicating. How convenient it is to see who their friends and family members are. How easy it is to track their movements, to see their planning and progress as it unfolds from the very device they hold in their hands and that they carry with them 
as they go about their daily business. Thanks to social media and spyware, we're in your chats. We're in your Skype calls. We're in your bedroom. We're in your mind. Most surveillance services are outsourced to private industry. Although commercial, these are not the type of services anyone can just order up through Amazon. These tools are marketed benignly as a way to assist law enforcement, anti-terror, and other national security investigations. What we have found is that they are widely abused instead. In the hands of despots and autocrats who define crime and terrorism, as including virtually anything that challenges their right to rule, spyware has been used to hack into the devices of journalists, activists, human rights defenders, humanitarians, exiled political opposition figures, lawyers, and academics. This wild west of abusive targeting is not surprising considering controls on the market are virtually non-existent. I'm, I'm curious yeah. what, you, what you called the Wild West. Mm -hmm. Is it any wilder right now? Does it feel like it? Is it wilder? Now? It's, mm -hmm. I, I mean, progressively to me, um, things look pretty bad and it certainly feels like uh, we're in a pretty dark place. I don't see, with some exceptions, a lot of improvement. I think that um, you know, one of the, if, if there is a, I'm not a big fan of, of master variables in, in history. I don't think Jennifer would be either knowing, knowing her work, but I, I do think there's one, um, factor that, that seems to come up over and over again, and that's, uh, unintended consequences. And I think that's the case with the internet and social media. It was developed with a certain benign image in mind and, and a lot of great technology, very useful applications. But you can, you can never anticipate how these things are actually going to be deployed. And what happened was that governments uh, who had extensive capabilities, mostly in the shadows, really progressed in terms of their ability to control information, to monitor people, uh, to neutralize social movements. And it took a while for us to recognize it because it was happening mostly clandestinely. Um, and I think now it's to the point where there is a dramatic and palpable chill across civil society. I think there is a crisis of liberal democracy and technology of the sort that I've described there is one of the reasons why we're seeing the spread of authoritarian practices worldwide, uh, democratic regression, and transnational repression. Uh, to me, this is a, a global emergency because we obviously face uh, some pretty serious catastrophic and existential risks as a species. And if we're trying to solve those while at the same time being spied on, being manipulated, and also being confused and disoriented in the equivalent of our public sphere today, uh, then we're doomed. Jennifer, going back to the underlying factors, you know, we have, I think all of us recognize that there's been kind of this concentration of information on the one hand with governments, as Ron said, sort of targeting their political enemies by information that they've harvested about them online and also with disinformation that they spread online. And all that concentration of information seems to coincide with a concentration of enormous wealth at the same time, you know, the 1% as we, as we talk about. Do you see a connection between those two things, these two concentrations? 
Yeah, there is certainly in terms of their effect. You know, listening to Ron, you have a distrust of populations in government. And so even the kinds of threats that Ron describes to democracy, this idea that our own democracy may be in peril as a result of foreign influence, as a result of, uh, of spying, etc., there is a lack of trust in anything our government says about wanting to take action on that. And I think, you know, that is a, a particular tragedy, but it is a result of a number of developments over the last couple of decades. You know, for me, democracy involves two very simple things, right? On the one hand, it is about equality of voice and the flip side, that your voice is also equally considered, right? And as much as Canadians believe in democracy, they don't believe their voice is being heard, is being considered. Other voices, those of corporations, those of the wealthy are being heard more. But the other value that's critical to democracy is fairness, a sense of fairness. And I think that the concentration of wealth that Western publics all saw growing, but also saw in many respects get worse after the 2008 financial crisis, you know, brought us to, in part, I don't want to say it's everything, Nala, but I think in part it contributed to the lack of trust uh, in government. We saw those, if you want to point fingers, we saw those who caused the financial crisis come out of that crisis better off. And so we can think of those kinds of connections that just at the moment when we need to have trust in public officials to take steps to protect our democracy, to protect, to try to create an information space that has integrity again, there's going to be enormous suspicion uh, because of the declining trust in, in government generally. Ron, you're, you're nodding and I'd like to hear what's in your head. Yeah, I very much agree with that assessment. And just going back to 1989 and your, your first uh, questions and Jennifer's remarks, I think that at the time it, it was, um, you know, it was quite a bit of euphoria because we, we were all taken aback. I was a graduate student at the time. I actually visited um, Berlin shortly after the wall came down, uh, went through East Germany. Uh, it was still a, a country then and into Poland and was just shocked like many people. And then Francis Fukuyama wrote this famous essay, The End of History, and people thought, well, there's no alternative now to capitalism and, and democracy. And you had a, a, a really aggressive promotion of a certain uh, variant of capitalism, kind of hyper-capitalism, neoliberalism, a lot of people call it, which practically meant a reduction in, in state controls, regulations, um, as you had privatization. And um, what this meant is that a lot of checks and balances that we associate with proper authority, proper uh, state action, disappeared gradually over time. This led to enormous concentrations of wealth and circulation of financial capital around the world, which has resulted in, in this oligarchic class a kleptocratic class as well that has looked to find ways to move uh, their financial assets globally and alongside of it has benefited by a retinue of handlers and mandarins and accountants and 
reputation laundering firms, and it's just accumulated over time. So uh, I see the world today, if I was to describe it, it seems to me the world is run by like a, a transnational class of gangsters is the best way to describe it. Um, so we used to think about if you want to understand the world today, think less of, of Churchill, Bismarck, and Roosevelt. Think more of the villains from James Bond movies. I mean, that uh, kind of better captures what, what is really going on. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think this is what I've seen progress over the last 40 years or so as my career has, has tracked all of this. And it's led to horrible abuses of power because the checks and balances that are essential to liberal democracy have been systematically eroded. So can you draw a line from that development to the flourishing of misinformation and disinformation? Well, I think we have to treat the, the technological components of the story, each of the elements slightly differently. Uh, they're related in important respects, but misinformation and disinformation, in my view anyway, uh, comes from some of the characteristics of the communications environment that we live in today, and especially social media. So it's important here to understand the business model of social media, which at its root is about one thing. It's to harvest as much information as possible from us, the users. And in order to do that, the platforms have to capture and retain our interests. Unfortunately, human nature, being what it is, we tend to be attracted by sensational, extreme, conspiratorial, emotional content. And this is not like the designers of social media came up with some brilliant idea or read some you know, sophisticated psychology to understand it. What it resulted from was mass experiments, simple A-B experiments on billions of users in real time. Does this content stick or does this content stick? And you do that over time systematically as Facebook and all the platforms do. Unfortunately, what rises to the top is that type of content. So naturally, just by function of the platforms working as they are intended, you have the spread of mis- and disinformation. Layered on top of it, though, are uh, the activities of governments and other nefarious actors, which started out very much experimental in the you know, early 2010s. In the 2015, you saw Cambridge Analytica, Russian disinformation in the US. These were very primitive early attempts to take advantage of this existing environment. Since 2016, we've seen an explosion in professionalized industrial scale disinformation. So on top of the existing problems with social media, you have this uh, professional class that is global in scope, uh, virtually unregulated, and is exploited by both private actors, non-state actors, kleptocrats, billionaires take advantage of this. Big companies do as well to try to confuse and disorient people, as well as uh, autocratic authoritarian regimes. And it's definitely a contributing factor to the democratic regression we're seeing worldwide today. No doubt about it. Let's go back to the other underlying factor that we've just discussed just before this subject here, which is the, the idea of inequality. And Jennifer, one of your lectures in 2016 was called The Return of Inequality. Do you see this kleptocratic class as part of the return to inequality? Is that part and parcel of that process? Absolutely. 
we all see it now in its most extreme form in the efforts to impose sanctions on enablers of Vladimir Putin, right? So the oligarchic class. And as a result of that, their wealth, the extent of their wealth has become much more transparent to us um, than it was, say, five years ago. Inequality is not just about the relative distribution of income. I think it is also about the sense that those who have more operate according to a different set of rules. They do not feel bound by the same set of rules as ordinary people. And there's actually been, you know, studies by social psychologists about human behavior associated with status, that you believe you do not have to abide by the same set of rules. And so this is an extreme version of that. And it has contributed to the lack of trust in government institutions. We see this in the UK. What is what is Partygate about in the UK? It is about a sense that there were COVID rules for all of us, but those who were at the highest echelons of government, did not believe that the rules that they set for the public during the pandemic, they had to abide by themselves. And there is, I believe that Ron is right here, a, you know, a class, uh, a super class, if you will, that operates under the belief that the rules that exist for 99.9% of the world's population do not apply to them. Let's play, if if you don't mind, a clip from your lecture uh, on this topic, uh, the return of inequality. In it, you talk about a received notion that that we've all heard before that somehow, you know, disparities in wealth are a kind of natural way of being. It's the natural order of things. And how maybe that idea is actually perhaps a type of misinformation in and of itself. Um, so can we hear that clip from Jennifer Welsh, please? For those who live in contemporary liberal democracies, one of the greatest defenses of inequality, its last bastion, if you will, is the argument that levels of wealth are justly earned. Those who have more have worked harder. They possess special talents. They've taken extraordinary risks. But in today's world of inequality, this is much harder to sustain as an argument. With some notable exceptions, and we can all think of examples, the individuals at the top are not usually those who have engineered great innovations for society's benefit, nor are they necessarily the greatest job creators. Instead, the vast majority within the 1% pursue what economists call rent-seeking, appropriating a greater share of the existing pie rather than enlarging the pie. And many derive their wealth from connections, whether familiar or political. Now, it has long been suspected that wealth buys political influence. We've all heard that. And what's interesting is that political scientists have started to give us the proof. So Martin Gillens, for example, has amassed some fascinating evidence examining the outcome of and attitudes towards thousands of proposed policy changes in the United States. And he shows very convincingly that those public policies that are favored by the wealthy, for example, in the realm of taxation, are much more likely to be acted upon by political representatives than those that are favored by the less well-off. So there's a feedback loop that's been established. 
whereby economic inequality translates into political inequality, and political inequality creates further social stratification. So that social stratification, when you think back over the last couple of years, how has it been affected by the, as you mentioned earlier, the half-truths and the controversies over vaccines and mask wearing, you know, through this pandemic? How, how has that affected the social stratification in your view? As I was listening to that, I'll come to your question, Nala, I was also thinking about, you know, that clip was recorded before the pandemic. And data and information I've seen on how the pandemic was experienced by people around the world, we saw how inequality mattered profoundly. You know, I was incredibly privileged during the pandemic. I was able to retain my job and work safely at home. And I think if we think about the effects of the pandemic there in terms of, and there's also now fantastic data on the color of COVID, right? That COVID affected people remarkably differently depending on the color of their skin in different parts of the world. There's data to, to prove this. So in effect, I think the, the pandemic, it was a great revealer in many respects, as opposed to changing a lot. It was a great revealer of all of the various forms of, of inequality that exist in our society. But with respect to the mask wearing and vaccines, um, I think, again, this, this incredibly important value of fairness mm that is required for liberal democracy to survive, you have to believe that the sacrifices you make as a liberal democratic citizen are also being made by others. And so many of us wore our masks, got our vaccines, acted for the public good, contributed in ways we felt we should to keep the vast majority of the population safe. Um, And I think many of us wanted others Uh, to behave in the same way. And when we saw some, uh, I'm thinking particularly here of party gate, it's in my mind at the moment, uh, not necessarily abiding by those rules. It was particularly egregious. And so again, I think for me, the pandemic has revealed a lot of the stresses and strains that were already present. And probably Ron feels the same way about misinformation and disinformation, right? How did people get the information that was so critical to survive day by day during the pandemic? And what were the authoritative, credible sources of information? I couldn't agree more. I, I, in, in listening to Jennifer, I was thinking, what actually happened uh, was really profoundly disturbing to me. So all of the problems, and I'm talking particularly around technology and social media right now, all of the pre-existing problems were actually dramatically amplified. So, for example, uh, prior to the pandemic, we already had a problem with workplace surveillance, uh, precarious workers, exploited laborers through uh, the gig economy. And what happened, as soon as we were all stuck in our homes, we started relying on those companies like Uber, uh, DoorDash, and so on, uh, more than ever. Uh, Netflix and streaming services like them Uh, Prior to the pandemic, they were becoming very popular, but suddenly everyone was binging and thinking this is a great way to entertain ourselves and escape. And isn't this wonderful that we can do this instead of, um, you know, taxing the environment with uh, uh, air transportation? 
well, what few people understand is that those streaming services actually entail a lot of electricity consumption. And most of them involve energy sources that are powered by uh, dirty fossil fuels. Netflix, uh, there's a report that Greenpeace did prior to the pandemic where they graded Netflix a D in terms of sustainability because they rely on principally on Amazon Web Services, which has the worst ecological sustainability track record, completely lacking in transparency. Uh, When you're watching that video or using Zoom, you're actually leaving a huge ecological footprint. And this is something that people often overlook. And then even in universities, uh, I saw schools quickly rush to remote learning And uh, one of the most uh, horrific things I saw firsthand was the use of remote proctoring surveillance technologies. Uh, So students taking exams were required to install basically spyware on their computers that monitored all of their actions. This is now effectively normalized. Uh, And then you look at border checkpoints. Of course, a lot of this was out of necessity. Um, But the thing to remember about events like pandemics or other emergencies is that The infrastructure that's put in place in an emergency doesn't go away afterwards. And so when you now go through any border control, any customs point, there is all of this uh, normalized biometric surveillance that you're subjected to. The problem with it is very few have a good understanding of who's collecting that data, with whom is it being shared, and how is it being used. And dramatically, uh, this is borne out by evidence, it disproportionately affects black people of color, historically marginalized communities, because the predictive algorithms are notoriously biased and discriminate against them. So what we experienced during the pandemic, unfortunately, was a deepening of all of the structural problems around the technological ecosystem that surrounds us. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is part of a series we're calling The New World Disorder. And it features two former Massey lecturers, Ron Diebert, whose 2020 Masseys were called Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society, and Jennifer Welsh, who in 2016 delivered her series, The Return of History, Conflict, Migration, and Geopolitics in the 21st Century. One of the threads they've identified so far in our conversation is how governments have become beholden to corporate interests, shadowy security agencies, and a growing extremism in the body politic all over the world. And while it may appear as though governments are powerless to act, Jennifer Welsh couldn't disagree more. I think it is about political leadership. We saw this during the pandemic with 
vaccine manufacturers worldwide. I believe if political leaders had said to pharmaceutical companies and were willing to take a leadership position, you need to produce X, make X available. They actually could have done it. This idea that we don't have the choice, we don't have the power, they actually do. Our discussion was featured in the inaugural Provocation Ideas Festival that took place in front of a live audience at the University of Toronto, for which a special report about civil discourse was commissioned just prior to our onstage discussion, a discussion we're calling Information, Disinformation, and the Future of Democracy. We're basically at a point now where someone could put an opinion online and point to any source and say it is fact. So I'm, I'm wondering just as a general question, where's the countervailing force here? Well, I think this gets back to a point Jennifer made about what are the essential elements of a, of a democracy. And, and I, I really agree with, with the point that she made that we can't take them for granted, require tending to, that we have to um, make sure that we understand what are the foundational elements. One of them is checks and balances. So regulations effectively to prevent the abuse of power because power in the hands of people tends to get abused. And at least one version of democracy, liberal democracy or Republican democracy, not the party, but the political theory, places that idea of checks and balances, restraints on power as central to the foundation of democracy. And we saw those actually systematically dismantled and they still haven't recovered, in my view. They're not fully appreciated. And, and um, so we're witnessing, I think, the, the uh, extension of abuses of power worldwide because we lack proper oversight. We lack proper public accountability. We lack public transparency. These things need to be restored uh, urgently if we are going to uh, continue to live in a political system that protects human rights and, and the rule of law. And it's crucial here, picking up on Ron's point, it's precisely because of the nature of these kinds of stresses on institutions that we should be very careful about assuming the superiority of consolidated liberal democracies. Canada, for example, yes, gets a good grade on several elements of its democracy. But on freedom of information, for example, it does not have a particularly robust or admirable system. And I think we're now uh, in a world in which the superiority of advanced liberal democracies, that notion, if it was ever accepted, has now been really cut down. That when we think about having to restore or tend to our institutions, we can't just be looking at a set of G7 countries. They don't necessarily have the answers of, about how to innovate democracies. We need to be looking globally. There are a number of countries that are not in that club of G7 that have done very interesting things to try to keep political compromise, negotiation, transparency, accountability going in their societies. We can no longer claim the moral high ground or the political high ground, if you will. 
But returning to the problem of disdain of expertise, you know, recently I spoke to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who gave a lecture at McGill, the BD lecture. You know, he's advised, what, seven presidents, uh, if not more, uh, a, a well-respected scientist, of course, a controversial figure, but he not only had to contend with the misinformation of Donald Trump, but he also had to worry about, you know, a man driving to his house with an AR-15 who wanted to kill him based on the misinformation that, that's been out there about him. Could you just both address the question of of what the disdain for expertise signals to you? Like, what what does that mean of where we have come to? With the internet, I, I think we've kind of created a bit of a, a Frankenstein's monster here. And then when combined with the some of the properties of social media, uh, the relentless assault of of information and facts, and all of it at a, a relatively superficial level. Just that alone creates conditions that make it very difficult to do a kind of reflection or a deep dive and, and to certainly to verify. So truth gets kind of overwhelmed in a forest of falsehoods very easily. And this is actually propelled forward by the algorithms of social media that push disinformation in front of people in order to try to capture and retain their, their interests. So um, that's a pretty daunting mixture of factors to try to reverse or correct. I can't imagine a single solution to it all. So we don't want to overcorrect either. I think we don't want to see ministries of truth, governments telling us what's right or wrong. That, that's something that would horrify me. And I, I certainly see it in other parts of the world. It's now routine. In the name of fighting disinformation, dictators and autocrats are policing social media and cracking down on civil society. So we have to be careful. You know, we recently aired a documentary about authoritarian personality, which is, of course, the title of a book that was written uh, in the, you know, after the Second World War by Theodore Adorno, uh, looking at the authoritarian personality. And that study tried to uncover the dynamics of why ordinary people might lean towards uh, authoritarian leaders. It seems that the support for authoritarians is either growing or intensifying or both currently in this moment. Why do you think that is currently, right now? I think we need to be careful about assuming that ordinary people are attracted to the idea of authoritarianism in and of itself. What I've looked at in terms of, uh, in terms of data is a disenchantment with what democracy delivers, not a disenchantment with democratic values per se. The idea of having voice, having input, having a role in creating the rules that you live by, these are still values that many, many people are attracted to. And so I think that is the bigger worry. You know, we have around the world lots of evidence apparently to suggest that democratic systems are not delivering justice, fairness, economic growth, um, order, stability. That's, uh, I think, the source of, of the malaise. And so I'm a little more skeptical of the idea that, you know, human beings are somehow attracted to authoritarian values per se. I think it's much more in contrast uh, to democracy. But you suggested that unfairness is sort of underlying that idea. Absolutely. Of, yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, your question about the decline in respect for expertise, I think there is something specific about 
scientific expertise um, that is problematic in the current moment. And I recall that lecture by Anthony Fauci as well. And he made the interesting point that, you know, science also reflects a form of knowledge and knowledge dissemination. And it is about continually changing what we believe to be knowledge as a result of new evidence, right? So as a new discovery comes, we change what we said before. And science in and of itself is based on changing your mind, changing the story, right? And that was incredibly difficult during the pandemic and is incredibly difficult generally because we also seem to be in this moment, and I think this is linked to social media and the internet, where you aren't allowed to change your mind, right? You are not allowed to say one thing in 1989 and something else in 2010. Changing your mind, changing your story, changing your assessment is seen as a, as a bad, right? It's seen as a weakness. But also, you know, Nala, expertise is meant to be an input into democratic decision-making. And I think our political leaders did a disservice by hiding behind the reality that when you are a political leader in a democracy, it is your job to take scientific expertise and then to make difficult trade-offs, right? To then make tough decisions with expertise as an input. And I think that is what has been lost, is that responsibility of political leadership. So you're, are you saying that politicians might have contributed to Absolutely. this rise of, of, of lack of respect? Because at the end of the day, and that's what makes politics a hard job, uh, it is about managing those trade-offs, explaining those trade-offs. Expertise is one input. And that's as true with global governance as it is with governance inside nation states. So, Ron, I, I do want to just ask you back to the idea of unfairness. How does the way information or disinformation uh, work, I guess, or how it's constructed and distributed on the internet, how does it feed on this sense of unfairness that um, Jennifer just mentioned? Well, I think it's pretty easy to get drawn into communities where grievances are stoked and amplified and, and reinforced. And basically you have with with social media a, a kind, kind of giant vehicle for confirmation bias. And so people can uh, very easily uh, find some bit of data that reinforces their pre-existing point of view. And the relationship between misinformation, disinformation, and the climate crisis is not just about there's a circulation of opinions and people can't make up their minds. No, there has been and still is a very organized, persistent, systematic, well-funded campaign to discredit science by the fossil fuel industry that continues to the present day. And they are responsible for pushing out disinformation and using targeted espionage by private intelligence firms to neutralize civil society. That's what's going on right now. At the Citizen Lab, not that, I guess it's a few years ago now, we did a report called Dark Basin in which we uncovered a massive hack for hire operation one of the victim groups was the uh, campaigners around something called the Exxon New campaign. And all, all of these uh, various civil society organizations uh, were hacked and their private email correspondences were manipulated, tainted and leaked 
in the media and on the internet to try to discredit and neutralize them. It's not clear who actually hired them, but we turned over the data that we collected to the Department of Justice. Uh, the Southern District of New York itself uh, was actually a target of this uh, hack for hire operation. And we discovered that the company behind it all was, get this, a single firm in Delhi, India called Beltrox. Um, so th this is bizarre stuff, but it, it's real. This is no accident, exactly what we're talking about throughout this hour. Before we end, we did promise a discussion of not only information, disinformation, and the future of democracy, but also about this, and you both kind of touched on this, both being quite optimistic people, I think, from, from what I know and have read. You know, when truth is questioned and expertise is devalued, how can citizens respond? So I'd like to ask both of you, how can citizens respond? Maybe, Jennifer, we'll start with you. I think the most important thing that citizens can do is talk to one another in public spaces, is to come out from social media, is to actually engage with those with different views. I mean, one of the interesting things that I saw in the, the data that was prepared for this festival is that overwhelming majority of people believed that they were able to speak to others without necessarily saying things that would offend them or use language that would be offensive. They were optimistic in their ability to do that. So despite the fact that they believed that you know, civil discourse is eroding, when they were asked, do you believe that you can engage with someone else respectfully? They said, yes, I believe I can. So if the majority of us believe that, we need to do more of that. We need to not think that, you know, I think that so much of politics has moved online. For me, you know, one of the, the key signs of a healthy democracy is the conversation that you have on the doorstep with the political candidate that is door knocking, because it's an actual conversation on your doorstep. It is amazing it still happens, but it's amazing, for example, also how, and, and this is where I'm less optimistic, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this message going. I think it's really important for young people not to think that politics happens only online uh, because they have to experience the doorstep, the equivalent of the doorstep. And Ron, what would you uh, advise? I, I couldn't agree more with that. I, you know, this was this supposed to be a debate? We're agreeing <laughs> on everything. Uh, Jennifer said it so well. I, I would just reinforce that. I think that, you know, we need, in addition to, yes, getting off the screen is important because the screen allows people to engage in behavior that's a bit more, um, it has more animosity because the, the various, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, um, reflexes that we have are stripped away. Um, but you also, this is an important point she was making here, you need to exercise politics and, and do it at the local level. Uh, get involved, um, you know, pick some particular issue that you care about or a few and actually go out there and meet with other people. Um, it, it has to happen at local levels. It may be daunting to think about fixing all of the stuff that we're talking about, especially when you factor in the global scale of it all, um, but begin right in your own backyard. 
uh, pick a cause that you care about, find other people who, who share your views and, and start advocating for change in that area in a positive direction. Take Given that we began this conversation looking at the, un- the large dynamics and the underlying reasons that brought us to this moment, beyond what the average person can do, you know, when we look at inequality and all these other factors we brought up, what, what is your big advice for the, for the big players in all of this? Me? Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, in some ways asking people to solve this problem is a bit like uh, the situation with climate change, that, you know, there are big structural factors at play here. So as much as I would definitely advise people to get involved, um, ultimately we need to solve things at a macro scale. And, and that means um, we definitely need more principled democratic governance over the technological landscape. It's really sad, cynical stuff to see this happening. You know, the relationship between kind of snake oil companies selling, you know, vitamins and, and you know, supplements and, and creating large enterprises over social media to then foster disinformation and introduce skepticism around vaccines. These are large industrial scale enterprises. Uh, there are some really good studies that look at the business behind it and the money making, you know, so many people died because of the ignorance that was fueled through social media by greedy people simply manipulating through Facebook advertisements, uh, you know, relatively innocent folks who were looking for some kind of information on these platforms about how to live a healthy life through yoga, through vitamins, through health food, etc. Um, you know, the, there was the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Haugen, and she came forward with this study, this internal study that Facebook did, where they created this fictitious account of a, it was a kind of a, a bland account with not much detail. I think it was a, a, a woman in her middle ages with a few interests, yoga and so on. And they just let the account run automatically. And within something like two weeks, it was full of like QAnon anti-vax conspiracy theorizing, right? So uh, what did they do? Oh boy, let's just never make that public. So we had to hear about it from, from the whistleblower. There's something fundamentally wrong with the communications environment that we live in. It has lethal consequences, right? We saw it in the pandemic. Is anybody dealing with this effectively? Honestly, I don't know. Like I, I really don't see a lot of examples out there in the world of hey they're really they've really solved this problem i just see it getting worse i'll just i'll just say it there i mean i could get into the weeds but if you look over the last 20 30 years um the main uh overarching theme around the internet and social media is to remove the state from the equation uh to allow innovation to proceed and now we're living with the results so we need to reintroduce in a careful way, principled democratic governance over the tech platforms. And beyond that, Jennifer, where would you direct your advice? I think for me, the action has to be addressing inequality globally, but also domestically. And I say this even at the moment that we are faced with a war in Ukraine. You know, one of the most troubling uh, things I see is a reaction again in in countries, particularly in the global south, who are saying to advanced civil democracies, what's going on right now proves that you only care about what you care about. You only care about the war in Ukraine and you're not delivering 
on the majority of the issues that we need you to deliver on. So even though this is a very important moment, uh, particularly leaders of, of advanced liberal democratic states have to be able to work on all of the dimensions and not become excessively focused on a crisis that matters only only for one part of the world. Is there an experience or a concrete example that you have uh, had that convinces you that all isn't lost in this sphere? You know, when we're talking about the ecosystem of information and how it could bolster democracy. Is there any experience that you've had that you could point to that gives you hope? On that score, yeah, I, I see it all the time, actually, with the groups that we work with at the Citizen Lab, mostly local grassroots human rights organizations that face relentless targeted espionage. The last trip I made prior to the pandemic was to India, specifically to go visit Tibetans in Dharamsala, India. And I, I, I was there to meet Tibetan organizations that are working on digital security. We've worked with them for well over... I would say 10 years now, and have seen this incredible maturation in their local capacity. Takes a long time to get to the point where they can, even now, not totally defend themselves, but they're way better equipped. And that took a lot of time. It took a lot of support from many different foundations and organizations and groups. And I see that repeated in in all over the world in local circumstances. So I, I'm very optimistic it will take time, but I think I see this uh, recovery happening among many groups in civil society at local levels worldwide, and that gives me great hope. I'm not massively hopeful on that front. I, do you know, every time there is an election result that is very close and it is accepted without violence. People accept a peaceful transfer of power. I sort of think it's a small miracle. And when I see it in divided societies, you know, I will hold up an example of a society that does this incredibly well is Ghana. Ghana has incredibly contested elections. And yet it has what's called a peace council made up of representatives of its society to ensure that when there is a contested election, when those ballots are counted, there's a peaceful transfer of power. That for me, every time that happens somewhere in the world, it's a small miracle. And it continues to give me hope. Interesting, you both chose international examples. Another discussion for another day. Jennifer Welsh and Ron Diebert, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. You were listening to Information, Disinformation, and the Future of Democracy with Jennifer Welsh and Ron Diebert, both past Massey lecturers. This episode is the first in our five-part series, The New World Disorder. The survey about civil discourse you heard Jennifer and Ron refer to can be found on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where you can also find the Citizen Lab report, Dark Basin. This discussion was taped in front of a live audience at Innes Town Hall at the University of Toronto as part of the very first Provocation Ideas Festival. You can find a link to it on our website. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval, with extra production help from Julia Whitman. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. 
The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, who produced this episode, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.